Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by CLNS Media. Today on the show, good friend of the program, Coles Wicker, is back. We're going to break down some NBA playoffs. But first, I, I just got to tell you, Cole, I ate like boxed mac and cheese for the first time since like <laughs> it had to be since 2014, maybe 2015. Basically, since like after I started dating my current fiance, soon to be wife. And I got to tell you, it's not very good. It's just it's just not very good. Uh, this is a hot take. I had frosted mini wheats today. I never eat fucking cereal ever. For some reason, I just went for it. So I guess it's a day of the oddities here. Dude, frosted mini wheats are underrated. I will say they're that. good. They're a good snack food. Concur. No, I'm in on them now. Uh, I usually do eggs in the morning and stuff like that. Pretty pretty mundane when it comes to food diversification, especially for breakfast. But uh, frosted mini wheats, it was this morning. It was decent. See, like, I don't even, I tend not to eat breakfast. I tend to just have coffee and then, like, have a meal at 12 or something like that. And, yeah, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do eggs. I'm going to do maybe, Laura likes to make porridge. So there will be times where I'll eat porridge. Um, but, yeah, no, I tend to keep it pretty uh pretty low-key when it comes to breakfast we should uh apply for some food network uh money here because i people are turning tuning in probably to hear about the draft and the nba playoffs and we're giving them a bunch of food advice breakfast advice so that's uh i can't say that's too form but it's been enjoyable (laughs) well so i'm in the middle right now of uh we're trying to set up a tasting for a wedding cake right now and like so people who know and have followed the podcast for a while and followed me online and stuff know that I like to bake. And I have this like ridiculous notion in my brain that I might be able to make a wedding cake. And what's happening is this weekend I'm taste I'm testing out to see if it's even logically plausible <laughs> for me to make a wedding cake because one of Laura's friends at work is getting married in a couple of months before we get married. Um but they're doing like a work party for her and they want to do like a mini wedding cake. So I told them that I would make it just as like a test run basically to see if this is even in the realm of possibility for me. And I'm very excited to find out if this is remotely plausible. Can you film this and post it on Twitter? I would be very into watching you try to make a wedding cake. It it just seems like there's no way I would ever be able to do something like that. So (laughs) see, like, my my problem is I don't think I can do like the intricate detail of like making flowers on a cake. I think that I can make a cake. It will taste very good. I am not concerned about any of that. The problem is doing like the level of detail that I yeah. think a wedding cake requires. I'm not like I am not the level baker to where I would feel good going on like Great British Bake Show. But I'm like a level below that. Jesus, this is like expert level over here, or pseudo expert level. Uh, it seems like it would take a, require a lot of patience to do something no, like that. Like a hundred percent amateur level, and yeah, baking does require <laughs> some patience. It's like it's how I like totally get away from basketball whenever I need to just totally get away from basketball because uh, it takes like multiple hours, and it's just a very easy, not easy, but like very fulfilling task. Uh, it, it's it's the right way to go about things. The only thing I can do is grill. That's all I got. So that's what I do when I don't watch basketball. That See, and Game of Thrones. <laughs> I fuck up with grilling. I can't like Laura has to grill whenever because we have a grill like out on our balcony and I can't do it. I don't know why. It's just not a skill set I have. I overcook everything. See, the thing is, I only cook for myself, though, so I don't have other people to evaluate me. I'd assume if that would have happened, I would not be to the level of competency when it comes to grilling, but for myself, it's fine. 
so this episode, we're going to talk about um, the NBA playoffs to start. So we're going to talk about like the shitty ass Houston Golden State series. And then we're going to move on to the more fun Eastern Conference series and maybe the most fun series that is Denver Portland. Um, then we are going to talk about uh, just some NBA draft stuff. I released a mock draft earlier this week. Go subscribe to The Athletic. Go read that. Additionally, we are then going to talk about some of our, a couple of debates that have arisen among Cole and I. Because Cole and I tend to have pretty similar views for the most part. This is one where we are just nowhere even remotely close to being uh, in lockstep on this. And it's Grant Williams against Rui Hachimura. Uh of note, I might be a little bit biased about Rui. Uh, I, I am very much a fan. This episode is sponsored by LinkedIn. We'll get to an advertisement for them later. But Cole, where, what playoff series do you want to start with? I'll just give you the floor. Let's start with Rockets Warriors. I think like that's the most talked about series. Unfortunately, for the first game with the officiating, I don't even want to talk about that. Um, but like you let, said, let's, you, this let's has been real quick, like just for like two sure. seconds. Let's mention it. So the second game I thought was officiated really well. The first Agreed. game, I do think the officials like there, there was the potential for the officials to have cost Houston the game. Uh, you look at some of these landing spot fouls. I do think some of them were fouls. I would say maybe like, I, I think the Rockets said like they cost them 17 points. I don't think it was that many. Like, I think there were probably two or three of them, but that's six to nine points and it was a tighter game than that. So I think that there was potential for the Rockets to have won game one with different officiating. I also think the Warriors might've just turned it up. And once they started losing the game even more, they would have just like turned it up and it would have been a totally different game. So I, I don't really know what to think of any of the, you know, officiating bullshit that has come out of this yeah if you're going to beat the warriors they have to turn the ball over i mean that's they have to be careless of the ball you have to get extra possessions and that's what they did game one that's why i thought houston had a shot in there and i don't really blame them for being upset about some of the calls i mean we didn't really know what was going on a lot of people watching were like okay this, is this a foul you even saw divergent opinions on twitter so i guess all i can say about that is i'm, I'm thankful that in game two that wasn't the case like ed malloy and that crew i think did a really good job like steve kerr said in the post game the refs weren't even on the players mind the coach's mind they didn't even factor into the game and that's when you know the officials are doing their job is when they're not deciding the game yeah no 100 percent um let's move on and talk about the actual series i think it's just been a fucking dumpster fire uh it has been so ugly throughout like both of those games uh you look at what the rockets have done they just don't have any sort of depth they have five guys that I feel confident can actually play at this level. Um, and one of them is Clint Capella, who has been something of a liability out there throughout the course of the series so far. So I'm really struggling with this one. Like, I think that even though the, like these two games have been uh, decided by six points and four points, like it feels like Golden State has kind of owned it a little bit. Yeah, and I like the series a little bit more just because I love watching the Warriors. I love watching all the subtle decision-making. Like, Draymond on defense in the series has just been absolutely fucking insane. Insane. Like his, his rotations, his ability to faint at ball handlers driving and kind of flinch and then recover and break up lobs. It's just a clinic by him. Iguodala's been fantastic. These guys just process the game so quickly on both sides of the floor. Like we see, you know, with Curry demands the trap and pick and roll, you see the Draymond short roll, immediate lob to Iguodala. And 
Iguodala has morphed into like what Clint Capella usually is for the Rockets as like a, a dunker spot lob catcher, which is kind of crazy at Iguodala's age being 35. I know that tweak cycled around that he leads the playoffs and dunks with something like 19. I love those two players. Like for me personally, like Draymond and Iguodala are like two of my all time favorites in yeah. this series. They've both been phenomenal and that's just been awesome to see. Yeah, Iguodala has been huge. Uh, he his they've gone to just the death lineup to start games in the series, which I mean, I can't remember the last time they've done that realistically right like i mean did they even do They're that last year against the rockets like I, maybe they did and i'm just not remembering but like they really are taking houston very seriously you look at what exactly. andre guadala has done like you said i mean he's got he's averaging 15 points and three assists and four rebounds and you know knocking down three pointers and uh really being a threat on the offensive glass and uh he's been a threat on lobs like he, he's just been a monster in this series in a way that if this is like the last hurrah of Andre Iguodala as a you know pseudo star role player like I, I'm here for it it's amazing to watch the fact that this guy is in his what 15th year I think and is doing this is it's amazing to me I love it yeah, 100%. And I don't even think the Warriors are really deep. They have five guys. It's just they're starting five Hall of Famers, in my opinion. Right. So it's hard It's hard for the, the Rockets to match that. And I agree. The Rockets really have four guys in this series because Capella, Draymond just takes him out of the game because he helps off of him. He's, he's perfect at breaking up lobs. He just takes away that impact. And then Capella can't space the floor. So we've seen that throughout the playoffs. As you can survive a little bit when you're versatile on defense. Capella's been up and down in space. I thought he did contain Curry a couple times last night. But for the most part, I think he's gotten beaten a little bit too much. And it's not worth the, the trade-off of sacrificing spacing on the offensive end. You cannot give the Warriors a player where they can just sag off of and they can help off of because they're the best team I've ever seen at that. Their help def- defense is elite. Even Clay Thompson, was he had some awesome rotations from the weak side last night to break up lobs. He had that one where he grabbed the ball got fouled. So I think the Warriors are just humming, man. Like they, they just have so much. And the Rockets can ugly up the game, so it doesn't look as aesthetic as usual. But all the subtleties, like Draymond, like dribble handoffs, making quick decisions immediately instead of taking a three, turning to like hand the ball off to Clay for a three. Iguodala has been great as far as those little winning on the margins plays. And they were awesome on the offensive glass line. Last night, that's another thing, is they just killed the Rockets. And yep. it was a lot of effort, a lot of Draymond, a lot of Iguodala. So I thought those guys really swung it. I mean, Curry has been, people say he's been disappointing. He hasn't made his threes, but his gravity impact has still been there. Durant, nobody can guard Durant. And that's just something that his difficult shot making has just been insane. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned Draymond Green. Draymond Green's defense has just been outstanding. But even more than that, he has been just so efficient offensively too. Went six to ten from the field last night. He was a monster uh, as a decision maker with the ball in his hands. He had seven assists versus three turnovers. He had the fifteen points, which if you're getting fifteen, twelve, and seven from Dre, they're not going to lose games in this series. They're just not. Kevin Durant is at a level that, I mean, like, is this the best Kevin Durant level that you can remember since he's been in Golden State? I feel like it is. I feel like this is the best that I've ever seen Kevin Durant play uh, for the Warriors. It's definitely up there. I mean, if you consider, like, of course, the Clippers series and just the playoffs so far, of course, like, I think it's very much at the top. The level of shot making, it doesn't really matter who's guarding him. So, like, Houston, you saw last night, they even put Harden on him later in the game just because they're like, screw it. He's, he's shooting over Tucker every time. Why don't we just use Tucker's help defense to help contain the driving lanes? And Harden actually did okay under it, forced him into some difficult shots because Harden's a good post defender. It was kind of funny to see like the, 
the Warriors went away from that matchup. They tried to get Durant and pick and roll to get Gerald Green on him, to get Clint Capella on him. But Durant overall, you just can't take away what that guy can do. He can just shoot over the top of literally anyone. He can get to his spots, his handle. He can draw fouls on drives. When he's going like this, like he's not even been a good passer in my opinion. He's missed reads, but it doesn't matter because he's yeah. converting an absurd amount of contested shots in this series. So you mentioned that the Rock, you think that like, Golden State has five guys, and the Rockets have basically four. I would agree with the Rockets having four. Um, here, here's the thing, though, with Golden State. Like, any of Jonas Urebko, Kevon Looney, or Sean Livingston would immediately be Houston's sixth guy in the series. Like, immediately. They're all adults who understand how to play basketball and keep things going within the flow. Kevon Looney's a good defender. Uh, it, like, Houston just doesn't have the depth. Like, Daniel House was unplayable last night. Uh, Austin Rivers hit four threes and was useful, but you're not going to get that kind of consistency from Austin Rivers on a night-in, night-out basis. I mean, like, Gerald Green is at least, like, athletic enough to play in the series, but he just gets rolled over defensively. Like, it's... I, I just don't know how Houston attacks Golden State. I just don't unless they just make like a billion threes like they made 17 threes last night they shot 43 percent from three yep. they have to basically do that every night to stay in this series Harden has to start making floaters i think that's one thing like to your point about golden state's depth i think livingston qualifies here just because he's such an excellent decision maker and he's good on defense as far as team defense and stuff but like looney when looney tries to switch out on harden harden is just dusting his ass like every single time he cannot contain harden off the bounce and houston seeking that matchup i think they could have hunted drebko a little bit more last night he had some yeah. possessions where they tried to get him in pick and roll on like Paul and Harden. He can't guard those guys either. So I think you see limitations. It's just the Warriors fit so well together. Like they're they're guys who can't shoot or just such elite decision makers and such elite defenders that it it almost doesn't matter because you're dealing with three all time shooters. But I totally agree with Houston's depth. Uh, Daniel House. We talked about this on the last podcast. He's a variant shooter. So when he's not making shots, he's not good enough on defense or as a decision maker to have value. And if Golden State's not going to guard him, at times it's going to really fuck up their offense. And I think what D'Antoni got super pissed at House, and I think it was for not trying to get the defensive rebound. He kind of leaked out and gave up this long contested, uh, uncontested rebound. And you can't have that. He has to give full energy and really be dynamic on that end. Gerald Green is going to get killed. Like they immediately put Durant on him, and Durant's going to kill him. So that's they can't play him. Fareed has been awful, in my opinion, not making the rotations. Nene, we saw him close the game in game one, and like they, Curry just ran a pick and roll and hit a fadeaway over him for three. So there's not a lot of ways Houston can go. I agree with you on that. It just comes down to execution. I think Harden has to be elite when that step back jumper. He has to convert the floater attempts when they switch on Looney onto him or it's just tough because they can't even get Curry really in a pick and roll cleanly because Curry's so damn good at avoiding it off the ball like he passes guys off off the ball so when you try to set a ball screen he'll throw clay out there he'll throw dre out there and then he hard hedges and he can recover it, it, they're just a really they're paying the ass to do it man yeah they are and like houston last night got nine made threes from pj tucker austin rivers and gerald green they got 47 combined points from Chris Paul and James Harden, which is like fine. I think those guys had tennis combined, maybe a little bit less than what you typically get from them. And they still lost that. Like just looking at the math in this series alone, like I'm someone who likes to get into the scouting as much as anyone, but like the math in this series just doesn't add up for Houston, even in the way that we would love the math to add up for them to make this like a better series. And like the games just are, they're ugly. I mean, Houston just hasn't looked great on offense despite the fact that these guys are making shots they just 
aren't making they're making shots, but like they aren't getting great shots. Like PJ Tucker made multiple contested threes last night. Austin Rivers made multiple contested threes last night. Like you take away those four contested threes that those guys made between them. That's 12 points. And this is a like 18 point blowout like this. It's just like the shot level that they're getting just isn't commensurate with this continuing to being continuing to be a close series. I agree. And I think Houston has to make an adjustment. They, I think they have to pull Capella. I mean, he was a minus 19 in 33 minutes last night and you have to free up and you can't let Dre just do his thing on the baseline and like blow up all these actions. You, you have to make him pay. And of course that comes at a trade-off. You're going to play Daniel house. I, they have to try something where they get more shooting on the floor and they can space these guys out. Harden's not getting to the rim enough. He's settling a lot for contested step backs against Draymond. I, you got to open up the paint and let him really get to the rim instead of Draymond just hovering around the key. So that's just a trade-off they're going to have to make. And at this point, it, it doesn't seem tenable to continue to play Capella the level of minutes he's getting right now because there's just no answer against Draymond. They, they, they just ha- they've never figured that out. So what, you want to play P.J. Tucker at the five, basically? Yes. So then you just get crushed on the glass like Golden State crushed them like yep. the last two that's, nights. Like that's it's a trade-off, man. It's, yeah, this is a tough series. Um, these are two games that have been de- decided by a combined 10 points, and I just... It does not feel like a great series to me. Um, do you have anything else here before we move on? Like, I feel, I feel like my analysis for that was like all surface level. I just can't get beyond the surface with this series, though. Like, sometimes you can just look at something from a base macro view and be like, "Oh, this isn't going to work." And like to me, that's kind of where we're at with Houston. Like, this isn't going to work. Yeah, that's kind of where I always was. I thought it was going to be Warriors five or six. And it's like, where where is Houston going to get enough offensive firepower to win this series? Because, again, we're talking about playing against an all-time great team that is really cohesive. They know all the intricacies. They know how to pass guys off off the ball. It's just a, it's a fucking juggernaut. And, and there was a lot of talk last night about Houston could have used Trevor Ariza. I mean, that he would have helped. But Trevor Reeves was terrible this year. Like that's also has to be taken into account. Does he up his play in this series? Like getting motivated, maybe. And there's been a lot of comeback on the Shumpert trade. He can't really play. Shumpert was absolutely terrible last night, and he's like unplayable in the series overall. So I get people getting at that, being like, "Oh yeah, you could have picked up another wing. You know, you're one short now. If you play a smaller wing, you get killed on the glass with PJ. And if you go with Capella." can't guard him. I, I think for the Rockets, they're not there personnel wise. If like they could swap Capella for Al Horford, then we'd be talking about a real, real series. Right. No, I agree with that. Let's move on. Uh, let's talk about Boston and Milwaukee next, because I think that that is probably the most interesting series from an adjustment standpoint. So Boston came out dominated uh, in the first game by essentially walling off Giannis and just causing all sorts of issues for him getting to the basket. And once that happened, the rest of Milwaukee's offense just kind of broke down uh, to a pretty substantial level. Also, it has to be said, like Boston made an unbelievable number of shots in that first game. Like they made contested shots out the ass in that game. Um, In game two, It was very interesting to see during that run how Milwaukee got so many shooters free. Uh, The run basically occurred like end of the second quarter all the way through the third quarter. It was just like an avalanche, basically. And I thought that the big difference maker was Eric Bledsoe. Uh, Eric Bledsoe actually figured things out and figured out how to adjust to the way that 
uh, like Boston and particularly Kyrie throughout a lot of that game was playing him and he made the right reads to collapse the defense in and then kick out to someone like particularly Chris Middleton had a huge game in that game. Yeah, hundred percent. This is actually my favorite series overall, just from a matchup standpoint. I think it's pretty fascinating. We saw the best of Boston in game one. Everything we talked about in the preview pod, as far as like pick and pop with Kyrie and Horford, both of those guys were outstanding. Horford was unbelievable in game one. His defense on Giannis was incredible. I mean, some people will say he got away with some fouls. Okay, that, that's the forearm stuff. We'll we'll see how Giannis gets officiated. Giannis definitely got more calls in game two, but. He was incredible on both ends. Kyrie, the shot making there. And then game two was like the it was Bucks ball. It was we're just gonna spread you out three feet beyond the three yep. point line. We're gonna we're gonna get out in transition. We're gonna get Giannis more drives. I thought they did a better job realizing that Boston switched some of these actions. So if they ran like a, a Giannis pick and roll with someone, like usually get Morris on to, to Giannis, Boston would concede that and just switch Horford off. And they and Boston switched more. And I thought that um, Milwaukee did a better job of taking advantage of that in this game. But we saw like the dynamic shooting. They just win with math. Like their team is created to do exactly this. Middleton was awesome, but I totally agree with you. I think Eric Bledsoe was the biggest X factor in this game. His aggression, his decision making and transition, a lot of driving kicks to the corners. I thought he was phenomenal. Yeah, and I mean, like you said, the math here. I mean, they went twenty of forty seven from three. Boston went ten of twenty eight from three. Anytime that you're getting thirty extra points from beyond the three point line, and then additionally outshoot a team from the free throw line. Like, I would imagine that you win 100% of the time, basically, in that in that uh, kind of math. So I think that's, like you said, that's just what makes Milwaukee such a tough guard. Because even in the first game, Boston struggled to keep Giannis and Tetacumpo off the foul line. In the second game, it was even more of a just absolute nightmare for Boston. Because Giannis just drove an attack. And like you said, he got out on the break a little bit more often. I think that was a big piece of this as well. And he just got to the foul line just at a rate that was absolutely ridiculous. Um, he goes for 19 or goes for 29, 10 and four in this game. Like that, that's the, that's the equation for them to win. If they make like 12 to 14 threes and Giannis goes for Giannis like season average numbers, it's going to be, pretty difficult I think for Boston because at the end of the day we saw Boston's shooting revert back to the kind of quality of shot that I thought they actually got in the first game they just made them Boston's just a very variant team because they're so reliant on jump shots going down definitely jump shot dependent I did think that they went away from the Kyrie Horford pick and pop too much in this game I thought they tried to isolate Kyrie on Middleton for example on isos and Kyrie wasn't able to finish it was kind of like the Indiana series to me there's a, there a lot it, of jason tatum iso in this game too it wasn't even just like the kind wasn't great so yeah tatum has been not good on offense and they need much more from him two of ten in this game of course but even like i didn't really like the way they attacked milwaukee in this game too much like i thought they could have done a better job the decision making across the board i didn't think Kyrie made great decisions when he was attacking in two-point range i kind of want to see them set screens farther out and let him really stretch lopez out towards yep. the three-point line and take more pull-up threes. I think there's ways that they can definitely approach this better. Jalen Brown had some really acrobatic finishes, but I didn't think he knew what the fuck he was doing on the floor offensively. Like, he was attacking closeouts. He had that one ridiculous reverse. But on that play, if you watch it again, like, Kyrie ended up getting the late switch with Lopez on him. If Jalen just kicks it back out to Kyrie, he just circles back out, takes a head of steam, and gets by Lopez. I, I thought Jalen took a couple contested, like, floaters and 
fadeaways in the mid-range that were just playing right into Milwaukee's hands. It just didn't seem like Boston's role guys were there as far as their decision-making goes. And that's something to look for because some of these guys are young. Tatum made some good passes, but he hit one, I think it was a driving kick to the right corner where Rozier like relocated out of the corner. Rozier was bad in this game as far as his decision-making went. So I just thought this was like an all-around terrible game for Boston. Outside of Horford, who is still solid but not as good. Like Kyrie's not going to play this bad again in the series, I don't think. Like, he was horrible in this game. Yeah, and you know the other guy that was horrible was Gordon Hayward. Like he was <laughs> unplayable, and they played him for 31 minutes in this game. Um, a lot of the time, like it felt like Milwaukee actually tried to attack him. It felt like on defense too. Um, and if there, that's going to be the case, you're going to put him in, you know, situations where he has to be the read and react help side defender, man, that that's going to be tough for Boston. I feel like. Yeah, I agree. And we should probably talk about the adjustment made to the starting lineup for the Bucks, inserting Nikola Mirotic in for Sterling Brown. Nobody really knew if that was for health reasons or not, but of course, Sterling ended up playing. He was really bad in game one. Sterling was just was kind of sped up, uh, attacked at the wrong time. Just couldn't make shots. Him and Connaughton, that got a lot of pushback from from fans. Connaughton had 11 rebounds in this game, which is kind of surprising to me. But, I mean, he plays with a high activity level. I thought both of them were really bad in game one. Got better minutes from Connaughton, at least in game two, even though you're not crazy about Bud's rotations as far as shortening him down. But Mir- putting Miritich in just gives them like a more decisive player shooting. And I think Miritich is going to have problems with Tatum and Brown. He even did. He had, I think he picked up two quick fouls in that game. But he at least gets someone else to where he can take quick threes. And ideally, I think I think maybe some of the part of the intent of this was that you took away Kyrie's hide spot with Sterling Brown. You put in Miritich, even though I don't think Celtics have a problem putting Kyrie on Bledsoe, even though it's not ideal. But th- that's a, that's a fine matchup for them. They're not going to worry too much about that. So I, th- I thought that paid some dividends. Miritich wasn't great, but he did have three steals, and I thought that was a solid move by Bud. Well, like you said, it just stretches them the hell out. Like they can play Nikola Miritich and Ursan Ilyasova for in this game they played them forty three. They could re- legitimately get that to forty eight pretty easily, and just have a situation where Boston's defense is just so stretched out the whole game that it's a lot harder yep. for them to just load up and stop Giannis from getting into the paint. And it's funny because the Bucks don't play like a complex brand of basketball. It's pretty freaking straightforward. It's like Giannis, we're just going to give you the ultimate spacing and you're going to take advantage of one-on-one matchups essentially in, in transition yep. and early offense. And they do that better than anyone. The, the Bucks just really executed a high level. And that's why I like this team so much. It's just like everybody knows their assignments for Boston. Some of these lineups that had Baines and Morris together with Kyrie, there's just no spacing on the floor. And I know what they're trying to do is have two big guys so they can switch on to Giannis and transition if they need to, because you can't just have Horford out there by himself at times because if you get a switch then you have Tatum on Giannis and Giannis is going to run right through him but I think there's kind of a juggling act a little bit here with Stevens and he's the best adjustment coach in my opinion in the league so I think he'll figure some of the stuff out but the spacing wasn't ideal at times for Boston especially with Kyrie trying to initiate yeah the this is the critical point where like having another body like Shimmy Ojale being able to be competent offensively would be nice um he he just you know he made a three last night but there's just no real respect there from the opposition. Like everyone's just yep. like, yeah, we can play four on five when Shimmy's on the floor. Um, and Hayward, like you just can't throw Hayward in transition on Giannis. He'll get blown through. So I agree with you. Like, it's just very interesting. It was another like pretty rough game. I thought from Terry Rozier, like he started out, I thought providing some energy, but then the second stint I thought was just really, really bad. So like, I, I just don't know what to do with Rozier. Like even long term now, like, do we think how much money do we think Terry has cost himself this year? Like, I, I don't think it's a crazy amount, but he hasn't 
been what I would call good this year. Oh, he definitely hasn't been good. <laughs> I, and I, I don't know. Honestly, I, I posted that on Twitter yesterday saying, like, I'm, I'm terrified of that contract. I don't know what it's going to be. Like, maybe you think that this season depreciates it along with, you know, being a restricted free agent. We'll see what happens with Kyrie, of course. But, like, before last season, I thought that he might, might get something like $15 million a year. And I think that has some Reggie Jackson type of downside as far as marrying your yeah. team to an initiator who isn't very good at playmaking. Like, Rozier's good in a very specific role. I wouldn't say good. He's passable in a specific role when he can defend and knock down shots and be a, be a scorer. But if you ask him to initiate the offense and make decisions, that makes – I'm pretty reserved on that idea. So let's move on. Let's talk about uh, Toronto and Philadelphia. So – Toronto and Philadelphia, it's kind of a game that comes down to pace and physicality to me. Uh, if this, if the Sixers can kind of slow down the pace of the game and make it a bully ball style of game where Jimmy can just kind of plow through defenders and Joel can try and post up and Ben can be Ben and maybe take opportunities in transition, but in the half court can try and play bully ball. That's a series where Philadelphia has a chance to win. But if Toronto can dictate tempo and kind of, you know, play a little bit more spread out, then I think Toronto might win like the next three games. But uh, it's a very interesting series nonetheless, just because I think that uh, I don't want to say both these coaches are overmatched necessarily, but like we haven't loved what Brett Brown has done uh, schematically throughout the course of his, I guess, time in Philadelphia. Great culture guy. Great at, uh, you know, instilling a locker room that works terrifically together. But the X's and O's and like the end of game plays and the rotations sometimes leave something to be desired. Uh, and then Nick Nurse, this is just his first go through around this. Like, I, I think Nick Nurse is a really good coach. It's just his first time. And I think he's kind of learning on the fly a little bit. I thought Brown kicked Nurse's ass in game too. just being frank. Like I the agree. adjustments that Brown made, I thought were really smart. Putting Embiid on Siakam, Simmons on Kawhi. Harris on Gasol and I didn't see like a counter by nurse at all I thought that you know the end of the first quarter he had only Siakam and Green as the starters on the floor I think you need more pop there he did start the second quarter with Lowry but this is a game of of margins you have to win on the margins this game specifically game two at the end of the third quarter he had Meeks on the floor with only Kawhi as the starter and at the beginning I think at the end of the third quarter too actually two fouls on Ibaka guarding Embiid and this is the biggest low-hanging fruit adjustment in the playoffs, align Marcus Gasol's minutes with Embiid's. Why yeah. wouldn't you do that? Like, if you do that, I think they win game two, even if they shot terribly and they didn't play well. I still think they win that game. <laughs> and that's the kind of things you just can't lose on the margins like that when there's, you know, five points or six points can decide the outcome. And I thought that Nurse lost those five to six points in this game. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, what do we think is the way that Philadelphia adjusts back to that, though? Because there really is just like a limited amount that Philadelphia I feel like can do in this series and like that Brett Brown can do in this series uh, just because they're limited in terms of what they have on their roster, right? Uh, they're going to play their starters as many minutes as their starters can go. Like Ben Simmons played 44, Jimmy played 43, uh, JJ and Tobias played 36. Like these guys are going to go as much as they can. They're going to have to get like 12 to 15 minutes from the centers at some point. But I'm just very intrigued to see just schematically what Philadelphia can do. Because again, like this is not a team that really beats you with math. They're just going to have to out defend you, out bully you, get to the paint, get inside the three point line and just knock down shots. 
Yeah, it's about execution with Philadelphia. Um, it depends on what Toronto does to counteract, though. Do we actually see Gasol line up with Embiid's minutes? I, I think you have to do that. Embiid has not been very good in this series on offense, just straight up. And I know he was off kilter game two. But for the most part, I think Gasol can really push him out. His physicality in the post, his technique is just incredible. He can get Embiid to start you know, a post up five feet out from where he normally does. Yep. So how do you really counter that? Um, I think like for Toronto, I would post Marcus a little bit more. We saw that in the third quarter. If Tobias Harris is going to guard him and Philadelphia is going to send help, which they did with Embiid on that one time where he spun baseline and then dropped it off to Siakam. I'd like to see them try to take advantage of the matchups a little bit more. I don't expect Philly's bench to outscore the living hell out of Toronto's bench, which Toronto's bench has been terrible, but five points for them. Abaka has been really bad as a decision maker and Gasol's just a much better player, so I'd want him on the floor, especially with Embiid yeah. on. If Toronto makes the requisite adjustments, I kind of thought, again, this series was going to be five, but maybe I'm thinking six now because the one guy that had to go off went off, and that's Jimmy Butler. He was the key to the series for me because he's going to have to be the shot maker. He's going to have to make threes. He got up 10 threes in this game. That's pretty impressive for him. Like He doesn't shoot that much usually. Ben Simmons was kind of a non-factor in the half court offensively. He was awesome, I thought, defensively on I was going to say, like, oh. he was a monster on defense in this game. Yeah, it was, he, he but it was, wasn't but, even like it wasn't even on Kawhi. It was help side defense. I thought his help defense was just all over the place. He was a beast. Yeah, it's like he he's not going to take Kawhi away. Kawhi was still thirteen and twenty four in this game. Like it's impossible to. He's just such a good shot maker now, and he can utilize his strength better than pretty much anyone anybody in the league on the ball to dislodge guys. But getting Embiid's length on him, I thought helped a lot instead of Butler, and also freed Butler on the other end to exert more or energy on offense instead of trying to guard Kawhi. He was guarding Lowry. Mm-hmm. They kind of mixed it up a little bit. So again, I just thought Brett Brown really adjusted well. I haven't been as critical of him just because his like who he has to work with. His personnel is very stark as in positives and negatives. He has very strong positives and very stark negatives on this team as far as like what he can do. But I was just really impressed with the adjustments he made. I think he won game two with those. And what did you think of Siakam's play overall? (laughs) That's where I wanted to go next. I'm so glad you asked. Okay. So Pascal has this strange thing where when he misses shots, it seems like he wants to take more shots because he wants to like make up for it a little bit. Um, his like great games where he's efficient, he seems to play more within himself and more contained. Like in game one, for instance, like I think he went like 10 and 15 and was just, he created shots for himself, but also played within himself in a way that was great as a complimentary number two guy next to Kawhi Leonard. In game two, it felt like he just kind of went nuts a little bit and spazzed and just wanted to try and make up for missing 16 shots, like all at once. You know what I mean? I agree. He just looked really uncomfortable to me with Embiid on him because Embiid wasn't respecting his shot. He was just kind of drifting off of him off the ball. And he was kind of forcing Siakam into these same. He was taking similar shots just to game one when he was just overwhelming overwhelming Tobias Harris with his length. He was more athletic, so he had that advantage. You put Embiid's length on him, and he just kind of seemed more uncertain. He took some some bad shots, frankly, some bad floaters that just didn't have a chance against Embiid. It just kind of seemed like that that alignment that Philadelphia had just set everything off kilter for for the Raptors. They just didn't have a rhythm. And I think a lot of it was because Siakam seemed, he was like decisive in that he shot a lot, but a lot of his decisions just seemed like he wasn't sure if he wanted to on these drives. He didn't know how exactly how he wanted to attack as far as, should I just take the three? Should I take the pull up in the mid range, which he doesn't really have consistently. So I I thought, again, that was just a really good adjustment by Brett Brown. Yep. 
my bet is that like Nick Nurse and that staff gets with Siakam and like figures out a way to attack Joel. Like maybe it is just like kind of getting downhill real quick, stopping and getting to like a floater uh, in the what is it like the six foot range? Because I feel like a six foot range floater for Pascal, if he can get it open, is probably a relatively efficient shot. Maybe like a seven foot floater is probably going to be an okay shot for him. The problem is whenever he has to stretch it out and take like 16 foot mid range shots, those are the ones where I get worried with him. Um, I also wonder if he can just try and attack Joel and get him into foul trouble potentially. Um, do like a couple of quick Euro step moves, do a couple of moves where you're trying to get into Joel's body. Joel is obviously incredible defensively and is so good at using his verticality to make shots difficult on guys inside. But if I was Pascal, I would want to try and attack him more often. I would want to end up with more than two free throws in that game. If they're going to play Joel on me, I would make it so that I space him a little bit more and get downhill and get into him. Yeah, and I would try to pull Joel out of the paint, just run actions. Maybe if Siakam even initiates the offense as the ball handler or something, you run a screen at him or something, just to pull Embiid out. Because if he can just drift and Siakam's spacing from the corner and Siakam's not making shots, then you have Embiid at the basket. And that cuts off Kawhi's drives, Lowry's drives. I think you have to find a way to exploit him in space. And I think that I'm really looking forward to game three, just from the adjustment standpoint, see what Nurse does to kind of counteract this. I would like, again, to see more Gasol post-ups on Tobias, especially if they're going to double because Gasol's an excellent passer. I think they'll figure it out. But I do think that Toronto's offense can really bog down. It can become very Kawhi-centric as far as pull-ups. And when the ball doesn't move, they're not as good. And Lowry's really integral to that. He's the best ball mover on the team, the extra passes. I'd like to see them getting the ball around enough. But again, at the end of the day, like Danny Green missed shots in the last game. He missed two back-breaking threes in the last minute or so. Like, if those go in, it's a different game. And those were good shots. So I I think that we'll see it kind of return to the mean a little bit. I still like Toronto to win in five or six. So here's just the general, like, math problem for uh, Toronto in game two. Uh, Outside of Pascal Siakam, Kawhi Leonard, and Kyle Lowry, the rest of their team scored 13 points. So Marcus All, Danny Green, Norman Powell, Serge Ibaka, and Fred Van Vliet combined for 13 points james ennis scored 13 points uh by himself (laughs) for philadelphia so that's not going to happen again first and foremost i don't think like i I just can't see the raptors supporting cast playing that poorly again um van vliet this series has been kind of bad i've thought like i'm surprised by how uh, unuseful he's been in this series it's kind of a bummer because i'm a huge fred van vliet guy but he, he's just been not very effective. And realistically, I can even go back like a couple of games in the Magic series. I felt he wasn't very effective. Um, this is a team that it feels like does need uh, OG Ananobi like a little bit more than what I thought they did. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I did not expect the bench to be this bad. Powell wasn't particularly good in this. And I don't, I don't expect Monroe to have the kind of game like 10 points. I and mean, we don't even know if he's going to play the next game. It could be Boban. Mike Scott could return too. That would be big for Philadelphia. So there's some moving parts in this. But yeah, I, I just, again, it comes down to, I thought Nurse just didn't adjust in game two. He, he lost on the margins and you can't do that in a playoff series. You can't lose those things that are correctable. And I think he, he'll probably correct it for game three. Yeah. Like Nick Nurse is a good hire for Toronto. Like it'll be fine. And, you know, 
I'm sure the Toronto, when they considered Nick Nurse, they went to LinkedIn Talent Solutions because when it's time to make a hire for your small business or large business, even if you're the Toronto Raptors, naturally you want to find the best person for the job. Odds are that person is on LinkedIn. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your role. LinkedIn Jobs uses knowledge of both hard skills and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role the best. People come to LinkedIn every day to learn and advance their careers. So LinkedIn understands what they're interested in and what they're looking for. That means that when you use LinkedIn jobs to hire someone, your matches are based on so much more than a resume. Uh, Your LinkedIn jobs matches are based on skills and background, but also interests, activities, and passions. Uh, Matching lets you quickly get a group of the most relevant qualified candidates for your role. That way you can focus on the candidates that you want to spend time talking to and make a quality hire you're excited about. Customers rate LinkedIn jobs the number one uh, in delivering quality hires. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, and you'll get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash game theory. Terms and conditions do apply, but go to linkedin.com slash game theory uh, to get $50 off of that first job post. Let's go to the last series here, which for me might be the most fun, Portland, Denver. It's definitely fun because both teams can score on each other and the stars don't really have like stop gaps that can really prevent them from doing what they do. Like Damian Lillard is going to be able to get his in the series, Nikola Jokic the same. So it's kind of like a fun loving series almost. And I don't mean to d- diminish both teams. A lot of people see this as kind of like who's going to get the rights to get blown out by the Warriors, which is probably true. But from a tactical standpoint and a personnel standpoint, it's interesting just because it is so free flowing with both offense, both offenses. Can, can we like just talk about, Nikola Jokic like I I was a little bit (laughs) questionable how this whole thing would work in the playoffs with Jokic he is so fucking good (laughs) like he is so good Uh, he dropped 37 9 and 6 in game one against Portland Uh, he dropped 43 12 and 9 in game six against San Antonio like these games that Jokic is putting up, they're just like fucking ridiculous. Uh, he was a monster in game seven against San Antonio too. He goes for 21, 15 and 10 with like three blocks. I mean, <laughs> the the thing that he's doing more in the playoffs that I wish he would do more of in the regular season, he's hunting his own shot more in the playoffs than what we typically see from him. Um, he's just unstoppable in a way that is... So much fun to watch, given his athletic limitations. Yeah, when he has a good matchup, not even that. Like overall, he's just insanely good on offense. I didn't really have questions about that, frankly. Like he's so good, he's a fulcrum. And in this matchup specifically, the Portland doesn't have anything to really contest him. Like Cantor's not going to be able to do it in space. He can just pick and pop and get whatever he wants in that setting. Oh, yeah. You know, if they're going to drop Myers Leonard on him, he's just going to run right through him. Portland tried some things in this game. Like later on in the game, they were trying. Uh, Aminu and Harkless on Murray and Jokic to interrupt that pick and roll by switching it. And of course, the counter to that is Jokic can post these guys easily. So there's just so many ways he can beat you on offense. And I think that's just coming to full surface now. I don't know if he got enough credit nationally for how good he is as just literally the cornerstone of an offense being a big and how rare that is. But he can do anything. He can pick and pop. He can initiate the offense in a 5-1 pick and roll. He can make every read on the court. He the, His hit ahead passes are incredible. And you're just seeing all of that, all that decision making and all of that brilliance that he has on that side of the ball is just, it's evident on like a nightly basis now. Yeah, and the key for Portland is obviously trying to 
get back at least like a reasonable amount of what Jokic is creating offensively whenever Denver moves to the defensive end. Uh, Damian Lillard dropped 39 in game one. Uh, He still, I think, has probably been the best player in the playoffs so far. It's either been him or Jokic or Kevin Durant. Uh, It's one of the three in my opinion. So like this is just this series for all of the reasons that you mentioned at the top. It's just going to be a series of strength on strength. And those series are super fun to watch. Like this is the one that on a nightly basis, I am most excited to sit down and just be like, all right, this is fucking awesome. I am just going to enjoy the shit out of this. Like I'm going to, I'm going to bar trivia tonight. I am going to like demand that they put that game on the TV at bar trivia (laughs) and be like, all right, I'm not waiting for the morning to watch this game. I want to see this like just right now. I want to see this in all of its fun. It's really entertaining. And from the Portland side, we know what they're going to do. They're going to try to get Jokic in space with their two guards. They can do that in a plethora of different ways. We saw that, I mean, Damian Lillard getting the ball off a a double screen, forcing Jokic to come out. didn't always come out that far on the perimeter. He he did like to drop a fair amount. But we even saw some tactical stuff, like screen the screener to get Murray onto Damian Lillard and then do another pick and roll with Jokic and Murray as the two primary defenders. So that's kind of fun, and that's the way Portland's going to have to win this, is just getting Jokic stretched out, get to the rim. Damian has that blow by speed. Obviously, the pull-up gravity. It's just, can Portland outscore the Nuggets? Because I don't know if Portland can stop the Nuggets. I don't know if they have anything they can throw at Jokic. It's going to matter. He's going to be able to get his regardless and get his teammates theirs. It's just, can Portland outscore these guys? And Aminu was terrible in Game 1. I thought he got killed by Millsap in the first half. Millsap was kind of a quietly a little bit of an X-factor in this series. At least I thought that because he has such a strength advantage over both of the combo forwards for Portland. But in the second half, I think down the stretch, Dame got him a couple times in space and they really targeted him a little bit. So that's going to be an interesting uh, storyline to monitor. But I mean, do the Blazers insert Seth Curry into, into more into the rotation, into the starting lineup and just try to outshoot these guys? It's, it's kind of a fascinating back and forth just because I don't think at the end of the day that Portland can stop Denver. And it's weird because I think like on some level, you just have to roll with Ennis Cantor because Cantor for all of the just getting eviscerated by Nikola Jokic that happened. Um, he's still at 26 and seven. Like he was actually pretty useful in this game offensively, at least. So like that matters and that helps whenever you're in a situation where you have to try and outscore Denver Myers Leonard just can't play in the series. I don't think really like he got rolled pretty easily in the minutes that he was out there. It felt like um, I'm trying to think like, is, is like Rodney hood, a guy that could be like just, incredibly useful for Portland, maybe move like Rodney Hood into the starting lineup for Mo Harkless. Yeah, that could end up being the case. He was he was pretty good in this one. He had some mid-post ISOs, yeah. got to the rim. I think he shook Beasley a couple times, Murray once, I want to say. So he was effective. It's kind of wild, though. Between Amino and Harkless, I took 1-3 in 50 combined minutes. That is rare. I mean, that means that Denver's taken away that weak side corner three pass to a fair amount. And uh, and a lot of uh, the Blazers' pressure in this is going to come out of middle pick and roll. But you still got to see Aminu and Harkless get some shots up. Otherwise, like, if they don't have that gravity and Millsap can just help on the weak side, because that's how Denver likes to do their defenses. Jokic kind of, you know, a little bit of a soft show, and then Millsap rotates over and gets the dive man or someone cutting. They got to put more pressure on these guys. And maybe they just try to outscore them. Like I want, yeah, I was gonna say like I wonder if the move is you just start um, Zach Collins and Rodney Hood or like those that's your closing lineup is with Zach Collins and Rodney Hood and you post up Hood and Collins in the corners and basically force Millsap and force uh, the other backside defender who you know might be Tory Craig might be um, 
you know, Malik Beasley might end up in that situation from time to time, like force those guys into making tough reads. And then Dame just kind of hitting those guys and hitting guys that hopefully are more capable three point shooters. Like maybe you even just go like hilariously small. Maybe you go (laughs) like Rodney Hood and Seth Curry along with Damian Lillard, CJ McCollum and Ennis Cantor. Yeah, I mean, they're going to experiment with different stuff. We already saw that down the stretch. Stotts is already kind of grasping for straws here, and it's understandable. CJ has to play a little bit better. He got off to a really hot start, beat Harris, I thought, individually a couple times, and then yep. he, had, he had one really nice drive down the stretch, but 16 points for him in this series is probably not going to cut it. Um, he's got to get up higher than that. And, of course, Harris and Harris is pretty good defensive. I mean, he's a pretty damn good defensive player. Corey Craig has been good in the playoffs. They're putting him I, on Dame. <laughs> Can, can we just, I, I'm so glad that people recognize that Gary Harris is good defensively because for so many years he was like way underrated by like RPM and stuff <laughs> like that. And people were like, oh, this guy's not a good defender. And I was like, dude, seriously, just watch the games. Like watch the way he runs around screens for guys. Watch the way that he like fights and claws like on ball against bigger guys. Like he's actually a pretty yep. good defender. Yes. And it, like, like, again, he had a rough start to the game, but I thought he really corrected himself for, like the last three quarters. He was pretty solid there. So Portland, I mean, Denver has a little bit more perimeter defense now that they inserted Craig into the starting lineup for Barton. I thought that's been good for them, even though Craig is another one of these variant shooters where he was one of three in this game. That might be good enough to beat the Blazers. We'll see. But yeah, this is just going to be really fun, man. This is going to be, this could go seven for me. I, I would not be stunned if it went seven. Um, I would favor Denver still just because I feel like, again, their offense is going to outweigh Portland's unless Portland makes a kind of adjustment that is somewhat surprising. I will say this. I hope it goes seven because I'm just going to enjoy the shit out of every single game in this series. Um, (laughs) Let's move on. Let's talk draft. Uh, This is what you and I love to do as much as anything else. Where do you want to start with draft? Like, you know, I just published a mock draft. Do you want to like yell at me about anything that you see in the mock draft? No, I'm looking at it right now. It looks pretty reasonable consensus wise. I don't think anything's really that far out of place that I'm seeing here. I think the top four are going to be the top four. I think that's spot on. So you think Garland is four? I do. I do think he goes to, well, I don't know for four for sure, but I think that is more in line with where he goes in the draft than him falling to like seven or eight. I do think he probably goes top five, but it's going to like, it's going to depend on of course what teams end up there. Like the bulls in this situation need a point guard, right? If it's Cleveland, maybe they don't. So team dependent, but I think you're spot on here. So here's something that I've been thinking about a little bit more. Why? Because I'm not actually sure about it, but why does everyone have Darius Garland over Kobe White? I think, well, base one, his pedigree's higher. So he came into the season with more momentum. I think they're similar kinds of players, which is probably what you're getting at. They're more combo guard-esque with the pull-up ability. I I do like Garland's handle better. He's a little shiftier to me as far as his handle, a little bit tighter. You can get that way in space or in tighter confines. So I think that's probably it. Unless you really, the only, a lot of people on draft Twitter have the opposite. They have Kobe white ahead. And I think the reason for that is size and defense. But I think that white's frame is just so minuscule. He is a a good college defender. I don't see him being a plus on that. And that would be the argument that I could see for white over Garland, but they're pretty similar types. And maybe I trust Garland's pull up more. I think that white's pull up hasn't been that good great this year like he it, it looks good and he gets to it but like garland can literally shoot trey young shots and he, right. his form is pretty awesome right so i think that like the idea behind kobe over garland would be kobe has like an elite uh intersection of size and speed right like guys who are six foot five like kobe white is 
are not that fast, typically. Just straight up. Like, they cannot get out in transition like that. They can't blow by people like that. And if you think that he can tighten up his handle and start to diversify his handle a little bit more, I can see why you would think there's a little bit more upside there, maybe, in Kobe. But with Garland, I agree. I think Garland's just a little bit more crafty right now in the way that he attacks, and he just has a better shot. I agree with you. So I actually am still on the Garland, like, ahead of Kobe White thing. But I have been thinking about it more, like I said. Like, I've been trying to decide, like, okay, I haven't thought about this basically since Darius got hurt. Is this something I should start considering? You know what I mean? 100%. I think you're spot on and kind of, not maybe not in the same range, but having them close together from an archetype approach because they do offer similar qualities garland like you said more deceptive better east west in my opinion white's better downhill and pull-up games they both have them like white has the step backs probably to a greater extent than garland garland's footwork is incredible but he doesn't have i don't think the same versatility on his shot like kobe white can shoot fadeaways garland's more like trey young where it's more step backs with a quick release so it's definitely gonna be a conversation maybe it's not to the extent of Kobe White going in the top five, but you, st- you start to see Kobe White's name, and I haven't seen his name outside the top 10 from like a credible draft site in a while as far as mock drafts goes. So I'd be surprised if they went too far, if one went like 10 picks after the other. I could definitely see a case where one goes within like four or five picks of the other one. So in terms of feedback from people around the, the league, agents, etc., the thing that I got most pushback on was Brandon Clark at 10. Uh, People don't think he's going to go that high. Uh, Explain to me why you think Brandon Clark should go higher. I mean, he's the second best functional athlete in the class behind Zion. He has elite defensive instincts. He's switchable. He's versatile on defense. I think in the playoffs, you can easily foresee him playing a role. Worst case, if he doesn't shoot, he can be like a small ball five who can switch. Maybe you get beat up a little bit on the glass with his frame, but he's so athletic. And I think his scoring package is just severely underrated. This guy can go through. If he gets a switch with a small into him, he can just jump right over the top and finish with touch. So I think that his scoring package, he's going to be able to put the ball in the basket in different ways. If you give him open space, he can dribble and he can just elevate over the top of guys. But it all it comes down to the jump shot. I mean, why he's going, why he's marked 10th or lower than 10th in some people's minds is the jump shot from three and it's the age. And I think he has great touch. So he's kind of like an inefficiency in this class for me if you think he can shoot the ball i think he's easily a top five pick because again you can argue he's the best defensive player in this class i think that's probably going to end up being zion but clark is up there and i think the value in this class is on the defensive side so uh, yeah i definitely don't think he's going to shoot the ball like at a high level um i i do think he will shoot the ball like a reasonable level maybe like two attempts a game makes 35 at some point you know what i mean like I think that part of the reason that people struggle with it, and I got this from multiple people around the league, is like just like priming bias more than recency bias, right? Um, so they've seen this guy play at San Jose State and looked at him and were like, wait, like, how does this work? Like, he shoots a shot put jumper. Like, Clark has totally changed his jump shot mechanics from the time that he left San Jose State to where he is now at Gonzaga. Um, It's just very interesting to me that I just think it's hard for people to get that earlier taste out of their head. And I think it's hard for people to look past what they originally saw. You know, guys get better all the time and I think people are late to adjust to it. And I just wonder if that's what's happening a little bit with Clark. 
No, I think that's spot on. And he has made a progression even in his stats, like shooting better from the foul line this year that, you know, is in accordance with his mechanical adjustments. I'm not sitting here and saying like his jump shot looks great. It's still stiff. His overall process is a little bit rigid. But at times he did hit shots pretty confidently this year. Uh, very scarcely, of course, from three. But again, I, his touch is incredible. Like this guy finishes on the move like someone I've never seen. Like he doesn't have like this left-handed finish, but like his right-handed finishes on the move, like that spin move that he does, it's pretty predictable, but his ability to finish at high speeds, I think is really underrated. And people are going to make the Siakam comparison. There are definitely differences. Like Siakam's longer, he's a little bit more fluid. Yeah. Clark is more bouncy. He's got a quicker leap. Like he's his quickness is incredible off the ground as far as his jumping ability. He's basically like six foot eight Zaire Smith, and his instincts are just incredible too. Like I didn't watch Siakam too closely in college, so I can't say. But I would bet on Clark improving at a rate that we don't expect because I think he's that kind of worker. And those guys tend to have like on, on this upward trajectory, and you can't deny that he's improved a lot during his time in college, I think he's going to continue to improve at a rate that a lot of people don't expect and don't get him credit for. Yeah, I think that the Siakam comparison is very interesting. Um, Siakam got to Toronto and has just like kind of shot out of a cannon, basically, in the way that he is developed. Uh, I do wonder if there's something to like he was getting... I don't want to say substandard coaching, but wasn't necessarily getting developed up to his highest extent at New Mexico State. Whereas at Gonzaga, Brandon Clark isn't really, that's not going to be the case. Like Gonzaga has one of the best development staffs in the country. I mean, shit, like Ricardo Foy just got hired by the Phoenix Suns uh, in part as a basketball development person. And he's like, he was what, like the sixth man on their staff. Like this university does an incredible job of just getting their players better. So I, I wonder if there is just not as much upside, like you said, but his ability to create off the dribble, I think is underrated in a way that Pascal's has turned out to be underrated. Like he just didn't do that at New Mexico state. Yeah. And the grab and go stuff too, if you can have bigs that can start your break. And again, Clark's not the most fluid here, but he can definitely dribble well enough in space and make a read. Like I think his passing at times is a little underrated, even though he doesn't always look to pass. There's just, I, there's more skill there and there's, I'm just betting on the touch, and I'm betting on the combination of that with the outlier kind of athleticism. Again, I think he's the second-best functional athlete in this class on both sides. And if I don't see high-level offensive ceilings for a lot of these guys, you know, I'm, I'm looking for impact players, guys who can make, make a difference. And I think that Clark can be that defensively in, in certain settings. Maybe he has to start the four in the regular season, and maybe he swings to the five. He's going to be somewhat situationally dependent like most players are, but that's where I see the upside in this class is on the defensive side. Uh, so one guy that I like, I think more than others is KZ Apollo. Uh, are you a KZ guy? I am not a KZ guy. So why are you not a KZ guy? I think he's kind of the typical kind of bigger wing combo forward type that gets pushed up the board because of positional scarcity. And I don't actually think he's very good. So like, I think his athleticism in the half court is really overrated as far as his quickness, his speed, his bounce around the rim. I haven't seen it. Uh, he can't shoot agree off with the all catch. that for what it's worth. I'm, I, I'm with you on the catch catch and shoot three. I think that's going to be workable. He's shown enough progression there this season. I think he's a decent passer from a standstill. Very not a good passer on the move as far as making decisions. That's something I look for from a secondary kind of player. And then defensively, defensively, I don't think he's as switchable as he gets credit for. I watched his individual defensive possessions actually last night. It's kind of a weird timing for that. But uh, three o'clock in the morning, I had nothing else to do. Um, I think his change of direction is okay. It's not great. I think he can be beat in space by quicker players. And I don't see like the recovery bounce. The length is great. I, I think he's going to be okay. But I, to be like an impactful to 
defensive player. He doesn't have like the high level athleticism or the high level instincts that I look for. So part of it is hard for me to tell because Stanford's defensive scheme, I think, is just really bad. They like sure. sell out super hard to try and like stop three pointers from being shot. Uh, like they, they will like purposely heavy close out on three point shooters. And I think that sometimes that leaves his feet like stuck in the mud kind of, and I can't tell if the lateral quickness is bad or if it's, he's being told to essentially sell out going forward and thus can't like react quick enough because like, unless you're just like the most elite athlete in the world, you just can't react quick enough to like step back and be able to recover. Right. So I- I'm struggling with that. I- I'll be very interested to see him in the pre-draft process to see like, okay, does this guy look good? Uh, you know, maybe in a combine setting, if he ends up having to play, uh, is he able to actually stick with his guys using his length to his advantage? And then additionally, you know, Stanford around him had, I would argue like zero shooters realistically, yep. the team's, just respected in any way. So I wonder if like it was a similar situation to like what happened with Cam Reddish, what happened with Kevin Knox last year, where these guys just don't have any space to operate. And once they get to the NBA, uh, for instance, with Knox, Knox's like floater game became more of a like weapon. And then at Stanford, like they ask all of their guys to go directly to the basket instead of like pulling up, they want threes and layups basically alone. So, I wonder if maybe Casey has like a little bit more of a floater game than what we've seen. Uh, I just like the skill package. The fact that like he can actually take a guy off the bounce. He can set someone up and then counter the way that the defense actually attacks him offensively. Like he is, he has actual counter dribbles, which is very rare for a 19 year old six foot nine forward essentially yeah and some of it comes down to how much strength do you think he can add he gets exploded through a little bit if he can add the girth to kind of play the four i I don't know if he's as bouncy as i'd like from like a weak side rim protector but that makes him more alluring to me i think he gets some comparisons to deandre hunter and and to some extent i think it's kind of fair as far as feel level i don't think hunter's feel is great on either side of the ball same with kz but hunter is just so much better technically on the ball like his on-ball defense is like really, really high level. Maybe he's not yep. an elite athlete, but he's so quick. He's always in a stance. So I think he's better as like a one-on-one guy. So that would, that would be how I would differentiate. But with KZ, just overall, I don't see anything in his game. I realize the spacing is bad. The situation in Stanford was bad, frankly. But I don't see enough in his game from an intelligent standpoint to make me bet on him high. I just don't feel like his field level's there. Yeah, and like when I say I'd bet on him, like I'd bet on him around 20, whereas like most executives think of him as like, you know, a late first kind of guy right now like 25 to 30 so like i'm just like slightly higher yeah and for a comparison standpoint you have uh nick claxton going 26 to the Cavs. i would much rather roll the dice on nick claxton see that's interesting because i i get where you're coming from but i think nick is like a pure center and i'm just always gonna bet wing versus center you know what i mean like that that's just what i'd rather have um in terms of like athletic translation to the position they're going to be asked to play, I think Nick is a lot more reactive. I think that uh, his feel for the game defensively particularly is just much higher. Uh, he knows how to get into passing lanes. His hands are very active. Uh, as a shot blocker, he's just you know a, a really, really good shot blocker despite the fact that he's very skinny. Uh, he has great timing. He has great instinct for going up straight at least and then like just kind of blocking shots. As a guy who can like kind of actually lead the break a little bit at 611 that stuff's rare um but i'd just rather bet on the shooting and uh 
like the shooting and size slash length intersection of Casey versus like the athleticism reactivity uh, at the center position of Claxton. I get the big argument, but for me, Claxton actually is a switch big. Like he actually profiles to be a legit switch big at the highest levels of play. I'm not sure if he's going to be intelligent enough or strong enough. I think during the regular season, he might be like a, a third big, but I think he can play on the floor against nimbler guys. That This one play where he switched on to Crow and Ro- Roach and contained him twice was one of the best plays I've seen all year. He's just really mobile, and there's a lot of work to do. I think he's a developmental prospect for sure, and it's a down-the-road guy, but I think I'd invest more in him. Even though he's a big, I think he can switch, and if you're, if you're versatile on defense and he has enough passing acumen, it's, it all comes down to the jump shot like if you can if you can get him to shoot the ball and pick and pops or just spotting up i think he becomes ultimately like kind of a rare commodity and if it was kz versus a big who can't play in the playoffs can't switch or can't shoot i would get that argument more and i'm, I'm with you on that but i think that nick claxton brings a little bit more rarity to the equation and i don't really believe in kz as far as his role even though he is a wing so like nick how much better in space is he than like clint capella like i actually I think he might be like a little bit better. I don't know that it's like crazy though, the difference. Yeah, I think a little bit better than this year's iteration of Clint Capella. Last year is pretty close and Clint's just, I think he's a better leaper. Like that's what hurts Nick so much around the basket is he's just not very dynamic. But yeah. But Nick's a lot more skilled. Like what we're seeing in this series from Clint where like Draymond is just like totally fucking up Clint's ability to catch lobs by tagging so well. Um, Nick can actually put the ball on the ground and maneuver around a guy and score. So like it's a give and take there. Exactly. And and that's what I like in in bigs. Like we've talked about in the past, like perimeter skills for bigs. If you can, if you have that, if Nick can shoot, which is still a big question mark, but if you can and you can play defense in space, I think that becomes a rare commodity in this class and something that I would look to invest in at the end of round one. So I kind of liked him at 26. It's good seeing his name there. Yeah. See, like I'm higher on Nick than like where a lot of people are. Like I, I I have baked into the fact that like, I think this guy's going to have huge pre-draft process and I think he's going to just absolutely kill it. Like on my big board, he'll probably be like somewhere in this range already. Um, like late first round, something like that. Um, whereas for most like NBA executives, like I get to feel like he's more around like 30, something like that. Like he's right on the edge of the first round. Yeah, I'm definitely hiring him. I would have him, if he declares, I'll have him top 20. Just a lot of that's based on the class. Like last year, who knows? I have to go back through that. But in this class, like I actually think, and you don't have to take him probably at 15 or 16, but where you can get him in this class, I think there's at least upside. And you don't find a lot of picks in that range in this class that have that kind of upside. We talked about this guy last week, but I got like some questions about Taylor Horton Tucker. Um, So I have him at 32 on this mock draft. I would not have him this high on my actual board. Um, where are you on Taylor Horton Tucker? Because like, I don't think he does anything at an NBA level right now. That's kind of where I'm at. I, I get investing in him because I do like some of his traits. Like he does have good touch. He was a good finisher this year. I, I like the frame to an extent. I, I don't think he's as good of a switch defender or a help defender as he gets credit for sometimes. It's yeah, mostly like about the age and intersection. People think he's like an actual defender. He's not a very good defender. At least not yet. I mean, he right. has the ingredients to be something. And that's kind of the thing with him is there's a lot of projection involved. And with those kind of guys, I get I, I have some reservations because are they going to get a chance to actually prove themselves? Like this guy is like a multi-year guy. He could be like a second contract guy. So right. That's what I'm at. Like, it's not just prove yourself. Are you going to get a chance to prove yourself uh, in the NBA? It's, are you going to get a chance to prove yourself for my organization before I have to make difficult decisions on whether or not to retain you? 
Exactly right. Uh, that's that's the key. Like if he went to the Nets or something who have a, a good history with development, I would feel maybe a little bit better with that. Someone's going to be patient with him and be like, okay, we have something here. We're going to allocate resources to developing him. We, we think highly of him and whatnot. If he goes to a situation where he doesn't play for two years and he kind of just fizzles out, that's what I'm worried about with him. Just, I don't think he's NBA ready right now. I think he is a ways off. And I'm not sure if the upside necessarily justifies like at 32, I'm completely fine with that. There's some points where I thought he was going to go like lottery. And it's like in that range, I want more of a return on my investment if I can't control the situation. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm still concerned that he's going to end up at like 21 or something like that, like 22. Yeah. And like that's just too high for me. All right, let's get into the main conversation I wanted to have with you today. Uh, Rui Hachimura against Grant Williams. Uh, so you are much higher on Grant. You have Grant as like a lottery guy, right? Correct. So Grant Williams right now, I will say just generally, like the feeling around him is late first, early second. He he still has not like officially decided that he's going to go through the draft process because of that. He wants to be, from what I understand, a first round pick. I personally will have him in the top 20 of my board. I think Grant Williams is a really good basketball player who is very instinctual, uh, actually knows how to play defense now. You can guard him up the lineup a little bit, and I think there's some potential for him to shoot at some point. I can't quite get behind taking him over Rui, and I understand that Grant Williams's basketball IQ is higher than Rui's, like by a fairly Sign- substantial margin. Yeah. Significantly, yeah. Yeah, like it's it's not just like, <laughs> uh, like one guy, you know, one guy feels like a little bit better, like, Grant Williams is like one of the smartest basketball players in this class. Rui's feel for the game is definitely still developing. What I struggle with with Grant versus Rui is I think Rui is unquestionably a better athlete, right? Yes. As far as like run and jump, yes. Functionally, I think it's closer than people think it is. I think first step as well. Like just the way that Rui can actually yep. attack off the bounce. His first step is ridiculous for a guy that's 6'8", 240 pounds. Uh, Rui's just... I think he's stronger than Grant. I'll say that. Like that might be a difference difference of opinion for us. Like I think Rui is stronger than Grant Williams. I mean, his frame is more overwhelming. I think right. Grant leverages really well, but like you can definitely say Rui has like the slight advantage there. I don't think it's considerable. Well, if anything, it's pretty it's pretty close. Well, let me, let me say this: in the way that strength translates to an NBA floor, like Grant Williams is better at using his ass and carving out space in the post than Rui is, but Rui can, I think can absorb strength, like contact a little bit more. Uh, and I think that he can power through defenders more when he's driving toward the basket. Yeah, that's fair. I think when Rui gets ahead of steam, especially driving, he's going to be able to dislodge guys more than Grant. Right. So throw in the fact that Rui is probably two inches taller and has, what do we think the wingspan advantage is there? Like maybe two inches. I think two. Yeah. Something like that. Um, I think his frame is going to be more capable of adding strength and adding to the frame. Whereas Grant's is, well, what do you think of Grant's frame? Do you think it's a situation where like you could drop some weight from Grant and maybe make him like a little bit of a different player? Like, I feel like that's something that we need to, that's like a huge part of the evaluation of Grant Williams. 
I haven't done enough background research on how he's already morphed his frame over the course of college and like pre-college. Like I did that last year for McHale and stuff like that, getting more context. So I haven't done that at this juncture. But I, his frame looks like it's a little bit versatile as far as his ability to add and drop weight. We'll, we'll kind of see where that goes. But I'll definitely do more background research on it. So just knowing Tennessee's like strength program and knowing how good it is, like I would imagine that there's probably like some room for like maybe like just dropping weight and making him like more conditioned and being able to run longer. Right. And like being able to like play harder for longer amounts of time. Endurance is the word I'm looking for there. Actually. Uh, I think there's probably some room for growth there defensively. It's just not even close. Like Grant Williams is considerably better than Rui defensively. Do we, are you someone who like ascribes to upside with Rui defensively? Or do you just think, no, this guy's never going to defend. I don't think I've ever seen someone with his feel level become like an impactful defensive player. Like he might improve. And I think in a switch game, maybe if you make it the clear reads and you simplify it for him, maybe he gets better in certain settings. But I've never seen someone that his instincts are still bad in his third year in college. And like you said, a notably good defense or developmental system. And he still messes up too much. Like there's too many fuck ups. So like well, here, I don't know how much better that's going to get. Here's what I'll say about that. So you should throw the first year away because he literally couldn't understand what Mark Few was saying. Got it. <laughs> and like, that's not me being like racist and like joking. I'm telling you from having spoken to him and having spoken yeah. to their staff, like for the first year, he estimates that like 25% of what was being said actually got through. Um, Last year, it was more like 75 to 85%, I guess. Like, it was most of it got through. Okay. And then this year, it was like everything. Like, he was, he's perfect. He's totally able to, you know, understand English and uh, not just understand it, but, like, uh, comprehend it and implement it into what he's doing. Yeah, and you have more context than probably anybody when it comes to Rui. So I'm definitely relying on your background and stuff. I'm just looking at what I see on the floor. And he has made improvements. Like, he does seem like he's more alert at times defensively he, he, he does make better rotations at times and i think some of the passing has improved this year so you can see a little bit of field progression but it's still not to the level that i feel comfortable saying like he has a lot of upside like i think you're like i'm always drafting and looking for smart basketball players and i'm going to prioritize that over physical tools that might be where we diverge a little bit and i think with i Rui, definitely value physical tools a little i value physical tools more than you do for sure yeah so i think that's where we're going to diverge here a little bit i don't Rui doesn't meet that threshold, even though he he has made improvements to his game. I just don't feel quite good enough about him as a decision maker and just his general feel level. The passing is one thing that throws me with Rui. Um, I, I'm concerned by the fact that like he doesn't make high level reads. Oh, I'm very concerned about it. It happens yeah. all the time. Like he'll have a and these aren't hard reads. Sometimes he'll just drive and he'll have his head down and he'll have a guy in the corner. Like he'll yeah, and it's like same hanging out. It's like same side corner too. It's not like he has to make like this complex read of how the backside help defender is going to react to how he throws this pass. Like it's yep. same side where like it's just a wide open passing lane. Oh, it's a wide open passing lane and it's an easy easy read to make. It, it and it happens routinely. Like I, I give him credit for improving as a passer, but that doesn't mean he's a good passer. Like I still think he's a bad passer, but he's improved a little bit there. I, I just it just comes down to what you. Said said about grant's defensive iq and his offensive iq it's just i think he's arguably the smartest player in the draft if he declares like i'm not sure if i 
can see a player that's smarter than him. Like Zion has incredible instincts, but there's so much like recovery athleticism with him. Like he fucks up a lot, but he just has the athleticism to do a race basically everything. I look down the list, like probably maybe Brandon Clark, but he's not as good offensively as Grant as far as making decisions. It's tough, man. I just think that he's that caliber of basketball thinker. It just comes down to what you think of Grant's athleticism, defending in space. I think that's where there's some divergence of thought with him and the shooting. And that just goes to the Clark point that I made earlier is like you kind of have to buy the touch, which I think is great. And I think you've even noted in the past, you think his touch is pretty good too, right? I do. So that's actually where I wanted to go to next and like basically throw this part of it in. So you believe in Grant's shot more than Rui's, I would guess, right? It's really close for me, like as far as extending, just because I think they, they both have similar issues and like their releases are kind of flat and they both shoot a lot of mid-range shots but grant's free throw percentage really spiked this year and you've seen enough of his touch on the move like with some of his floaters that i would buy his shot a little bit more but this is kind of where i thought we'd get to eventually is like why are you drafting Rui high like what is he doing for you that you is it's because he can score is that like the main thing with him is like you think he can score in the nba so i think he is a very interesting small ball five i think that i would love to potentially have him as someone who is strong enough to handle the five position, who is long enough to handle the five position and like still maintain adequate rebounding, um, who can potentially switch across the board. Like I trust his quickness more than I trust Grant Williams's quickness defensively. Uh, I, I wonder if like Grant at some point could potentially be like a small, just like a small liability on ball despite the fact that he's always going to be like a very good help defender. Whereas yep. with Rui, I think that Rui has potential down the road, given his frame and given his strength to potentially bang inside with like centers that are two inches taller than he is that where he can also just like take advantage of them in like slip screen scenarios where you get him on a switch or you get him where the center has to just like run out to the perimeter with Rui and Rui might be able to knock down a three or he just blow by a center at the next level. Uh, the key is just like, you have to buy into Rui being able to defend and switch scenarios with his physical tools. And I think I do, which is a dangerous Island for me to be on. I think because <laughs> he's just not a very good defender right now. Um, he's not a plus defender at least. Um, but I just, like you said, like, I think if you get him in a switch scenario, his athleticism is like there like he is quick enough to deal with guards and switches he's explosive laterally i do think at times he's a little stiff moving and i don't right. know how well he's gonna guard like the perimeter pull-up guys but i think he definitely has the strength you came at this from an angle i wasn't expecting i, I kind of agree with everything you've said as far as like a small ball <laughs> five on offense uh defensively again like, help so like imagine imagine being able to close with Rui is like a small ball five is kind of see i would never i would never trust him defensively and like as a decision maker on offense, so I wouldn't at the highest levels of play if we're looking for like in the, the regular decision, season. The decision making is a very real question <laughs> uh, offensively. Having said that, he is probably like an average to maybe like probably I would say like average decision maker for a center. Like centers aren't like the the margin for error is greater as the decision maker when you're dealing with center. Yeah, offensively on short rolls and stuff, you can simplify reads, but defensively, I think it's not. I think you have to make. Yeah high level rotations and stuff like that. And I just don't trust them there. I was kind of expecting you to come at this from like a Rui is like this 
dynamic score like a lot of people seem to think and it was kind of funny because like you look at their shot making that's probably Rui's best trait is like he can just drop his shoulder into you and just shoot right over the top and he dislodges basically everybody and so his pull-up game he's 33 of 69 in his career on pull-ups in the half court you know what's funny about Grant Williams is like this is the most underrated part of his game is like he's actually kind of a shot maker he's 30 of 60 on pull-ups in his career like he can shoot over the top his release point is really high that's kind of why I think there's some overlap with these two guys offensively as far as just the shooting, um, both guys are more mid-range guys. With they don't have the best arc on their shot, and both guys can get their own shot. As far as you know, one one two dribble pull-ups. You've noted in the past that Rui is a little bit predictable there. I watched all Grant's shots back recently. He can go over either shoulder fadeaways. Yeah, like if you have him matched up in space, like he can short roll, make a, a high-level decision. We haven't gotten in the decision making yet, but just he could. Yeah, like one that stuff is Grant yeah. for sure. Like yeah. he's so yeah. Go ahead. Good, go ahead. No, I was going to say, like, the short wall stuff, I mean, the passing, we've kind of already hashed that out as far as the differences and their decision-making. I think Grant is probably the best short roll guy in the draft. If you can get him next to, like, Damian Lillard next to Zach Collins, and you can play him as the screener, he's a really physical screen center. I like that about Rui, too, is, like, the frame for screening is there. I just It just comes down to the field difference, but I just wanted to get that out there as far as the pull-up shooting, just because I feel like Williams' shot-making... I feel like that's the biggest difference between these two guys in the minds of a lot of executives. It's like Rui can score. Grant Williams is kind of, I don't really know what Grant Williams is on the offense. He makes good decisions, but he can also get his own shot. What, what I'll say about Rui too is though, like Rui plays his balls off. Like that dude runs the floor like yep. crazy. Um, he tries to establish early position like crazy. And that's something that like in the NBA where you have the 24 second shot clock, like that stuff really actually helps if you can also add in making the advanced level read um like if he runs the floor posts quickly gets an entry pass real quick because he's just got a mismatch there he has to be able to recognize like very quickly okay is this something where i should go over my shoulder or like have i pinned the guy and i can just go uh up toward the basket with ease or do i need to make like the backside pass to the cross corner uh that's not something he's shown yet, and I think that that's something that is concerning. Yeah, again, I think this just goes in part to different approaches. Like, I'm always looking for decision-making, like the basketball mind, because you can't teach that stuff. Like, you can't yeah. teach Rui to be Grant Williams as far as how he thinks the game. And a lot of these, like, start I wonder saying if Grant you Williams- can for what it's worth, just because Grant's been playing. Grant's been playing basketball, presumably, for, like, seven years longer at a higher level than Rui. So, like, it'll be annoying to have to teach Rui it, but I wonder if, <laughs> like, there is some ability to teach it there i think he can improve but i think that's the trap that people fall into in the draft is thinking that you can improve someone's iq to the level of some of these guys just have natural feel and grant just has that natural feel right he he, like that one game i can't remember who was against i watched the other night where he dribble spin move he directed his teammates to space out faced up drove to the left and then threw like a blindside skip pass to the corner to admiral schofield for a three in like a high leverage situation i don't know if there's like five other players in college that make that read and that's something that comes naturally to him. He's always going to have that and have that process and like make the right little plays. I'm not saying he's going to be like Paul Millsap or PJ Tucker is a really popular comparison. I don't think they're like that similar, but like role players that really just know what the fuck they're doing and they don't make mistakes and they make great choices. And if they're skilled, it just comes down to, to me, like, what do you think about Grant Williams space defense? Because this is kind of another point that people get caught up on. Do you, do you believe in it? Do you think it's going to be negative, positive? Where are you at with that? I need to know more about how people think of his frame. Uh, If people believe that he can actually like lose, like, I don't even know if it's like weight, just like tone up his body a little bit more and add a slight amount of quickness. 
I don't think he's like far off being able to do it, but this stuff like matters so much on the margins that where he is now, he probably does get hit pretty good, I think, by like elite level guards at the NBA level. And look, like on some level, guys that we're projecting to play the four, uh, they're all going to get hit by elite level guards on some level, just because being bigger than elite level guards and not having that quickness, it's going to happen. But I wonder if he will get, I think he would get hit marginally a bit more right now. I'm just kind of curious. And if he would be an actual target for other teams, like mostly you see teams target the smaller players or like the bigs who are immobile. And Grant doesn't seem like that to me. Like he moves well enough. Like that second Kentucky game, I thought he really represented himself well. Yeah. As far as switching on to the guard, switching on to Keldon Johnson, which isn't the hardest assignment, right? I mean, he should be able to contain Keldon Johnson on a drive, but it's still promising to say that he did. I'm more like, I think his space defense is above average. I don't think it's necessarily horrific. I don't think he's going to get killed in space, and I think he can make up for some of it with anticipation and his rotational awareness and stuff and just being on the ball. But there are there have been some signs that he's a little bit susceptible to, like, okay, if Damian Lillard's going to like <laughs> give him a hang dribble and pull up from 30 or cross him up, I think a lot of people are going to struggle there. And that's what I think about with Grant. I think he's going to be more switchable than people think because he can really leverage with his strength. And I think his quickness is good enough. He's shown enough on tape to me in the Vanderbilt game too. Who, who's the who's the guard opposite of Garland? I can't remember his Saban name right Lee. now. Saban Lee? Correct. Yeah, him. he's one of the most athletic guys I've seen with the ball in college as far as kind of more of a fringy prospect. But he's got good burst. And I thought Grant had some pretty good reps on him. So that was kind of encouraging to see. But he's not a pull-up threat. So there hasn't been like right. a clear c- comparison there. Right. Yeah. Like Grant's like, I'm a big Grant Williams fan. Like, again, like I feel like NBA teams have him as like a borderline first round pick and I have him in my top 20. You know what I mean? Like I, I feel like I am high on Grant Williams in comparison to consensus and I don't like arguing against him. Uh, (laughs) I just uh, also believe there to be some small concerns here as well uh, for the upside that is essentially we're talking about a guy who might be able to play space defense like I, I think he probably can against a lot of guys but probably not against like the highest level guys which ultimately like when you're building a title team you're gonna have to go against the highest level guys um, yep. and a guy who like might not shoot it from the NBA three line yeah and that's fair I, I just think that he's being underrated not by you but by popular consensus i think he's better you see some him in the second round at times i look at the playoffs and i'm like okay this guy is strength strength is like the, the single most underappreciated component to it all of this. seriously like, is i talk about this all the time with people like you have to be so strong to deal with these guys in the nba exactly that's why you see a lot of these bigger wings getting shots like the daniel houses because they have pretty good strength like frames and stuff they get shots over the smaller combo guard types who can't defend it all in space and can't absorb contact and grant can actually do that and if you think he's versatile enough on defense to switch a little bit, his team defense is going to be good. I can almost guarantee that. His rotations, his awareness as far as positioning, all of that stuff, he, he just really pops there. And it comes down to the jump shot. And this is, again, why I think that the inefficiencies in this class are the touch aspects. And you're just kind of banking on that manifesting. They might not. Like Siakam, I'm not sure how many people could have said Siakam would become like a respectable shooter in his third year. Sometimes this stuff just happens with guys who have natural touch. And that's just kind of where I'm at. Forget like shooting, driving. Siakam is just like a fucking outlier in regard to the way that he's improved. Like that dude's work ethic is insane. Um, Yeah, I'm very interested in this uh, and where this all goes. I would bet you like if you had to guess which one goes higher, which one do you think goes higher? Oh, I would bet my house that Rui goes higher. 
So I would not do that. I will say that there has been like, I've talked to enough NBA people who are now a little bit more worried about Rui, like as compared to earlier in the season to where like, I look at this and I go, okay, like Rui might go like number 20. You know what I mean? Like I would say, I would say his range right now is somewhere between like 10 and like 21 or something like that. Um, I had him at 13 because I just really love the fit of like putting him in Miami, having Miami's ridiculous defensive scheme, like work wonders with him and teach him how to play on defense. Um, Grant, like I can see Grant's right now. I would say it's like 24 to like 35, 25 to 35. But if you told me, in two months is Grant Williams, a guy that has like risen up in the process from going through pre-draft interviews and making people understand this guy's really just fucking smart. Um, really yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Wouldn't surprise me at all if he ends up being a riser. It definitely would surprise me, but maybe I was just banking too much on the early season input. I've just never seen a mock draft that really has them that close as far as from not you. <laughs> like as far as what I've the feedback I've heard from like different sites, like I think SI still has Grant Williams in the second round or something. And I just don't know if he's ever going to be valued as much as Rui, but maybe that's wrong. Maybe that's maybe he, they're going to be viewed more similarly, even though I think that Rui still gets more credit for being like a scorer type. And that's always going to rise in value at draft time because teams are always looking for guys who can put the ball in the basket, which is weird to me. You're preaching to the choir, man. <laughs> like you have to be so fucking good to be a primary ball handler in the NBA. <laughs> like I've been talking about this with like Romeo Langford with people like, Romeo Langford can like kind of defend. He can kind of pass. He has good like change of pace dribble. Like there, there's some stuff there. But at the end of the day, Romeo Langford can be what he is right now, which is an incredible basketball player. Like he is really, really good at everything but shooting right now. But the level to be like a primary ball handler and decision maker at the next level is so ridiculously high that like unless Romeo, like I just don't think Romeo has the athleticism to do it, you know? Or probably the shot making, just because you see it in two levels. You see the initiators who are like the dynamic lead guards. Sometimes they're Damian Lillard where they're good enough decision makers, but they just have so much gravity with their shot that they open up all of these passing lanes. Or they're like these high level shot makers like Kawhi Leonard, you know, Kevin Durant. Those guys aren't great passers. They're not great decision makers, but they can put the ball in the basket off the dribble and they're uber athletes with uber tools. And that that benchmark is also almost impossible to reach as well. So I, I always think scoring gets overrated on great teams just because the great scorers and the great initiators, those guys are so good. Like the, the shooting efficiency is just through the roof. They can make difficult shots look the same as other players having wide open shots. And that's why I think that scoring in the draft is overrated you just have to be so efficient and so damn good at that to really have value and you almost always have to have you almost always have to play defense too if you're like a wing scorer like that yeah no i agree with that Do, is there any other uh random draft prospect that you want to talk about i'm looking over your list right now so you tied jerome at 24 you're just going all in on the philly shooting <laughs> oh yeah I'm, I'm i gave them ty jerome zach norvell and uh kyle guy i think Daniel Gafford, it looks like. Yeah, I gave him Kyle Guy later, though. Uh, I gave oh, him no, Gafford, no. too, because they need another like center badly. They need someone who can back up Joel. Uh, Boban's a free agent, and not a, not a Jonah Bolden guy here. <laughs> not a, yeah, he's no. been kind of a nightmare in, in the playoffs, for sure. Um, I like Justin Robinson, 58, to Golden State. I, I just like him as a player overall. Um, I didn't watch uh, Portsmouth yet, but a smart player can make reads. Have you watched uh, any of Justin Wright Foreman? I have. He's actually kind of interesting. I am very intrigued by him as a shot creator. I think like he actually can kind of really create shots. 
He's got that craft, that rare ability just to get shots off the dribble. I, I've only seen probably a game and a half of his, but that definitely popped. I usually don't bet on guys like that, but, you know. Yeah, neither do I. Like, you're going to run out of guys who you think can, can stick in the league. Um, Jordan Poole, we've talked about him in the past, 53 to Utah. I'm still surprised he's coming out. I would like to see him refine his game more at Michigan, but this seems to be where he's headed. Um, the last guy I want to talk about is, I believe he is someone near and dear to your heart, Daquan Jeffries. Yeah, I, I'm intrigued. I'm not to the same level as some, just because I haven't seen as much tape yet. But I do like, again, we talked about strength on the wing. I, I do like investing in those kind of guys. I think they typically stick if you have positional size. He's got the, the wingspan. He shot it well off the catch. I haven't looked too much into his decision-making yet. That's something I want to go over as far as defensively and offensively. It, it, it was pretty good in the game that I saw. I can't remember who it was against. But uh, what, what are your thoughts? I am a fan. Uh, I think he is one of the best senior prospects in this class, if only because he's six five, has very long arms. He is strong at like 230 pounds. Uh, yep. Very high-level athlete, plays hard defensively. Um, I need to see a little bit more like shot-making from him, like actual high-level shot-making. But at the end of the day... This guy should get drafted, I think. Like, at the very least, like, if he's willing to take a two-way and get drafted, like, that's a no-brainer. Like, teams should do that 100%. But even Agreed. so, like, I might, like, be willing to give him, like, a four hundred grand guarantee and, like, see if he makes it out of camp. Like, I, I am very interested. I like him more than a lot of these second-round guys that you have in the mock. I just think that you can actually see it paying dividends, especially in the playoffs, if he can be a good enough shooter off the catch and make some kind of decisions attacking closeouts. Not comparing these two players directly, but like someone like a Daniel House type on, on that kind of team. Like, more of a variant shooter, but if he does pan out, then you have, like, a guy who can actually be in the rotation. Um, hopefully, he ends up a little bit better than House. <laughs> well, like, here, here's, a, here's a question. Like, him or Iggy Brasdikas? It's really interesting, just because Iggy... I think he's really going to shoot, and he's so decisive attacking closeouts, but I just don't trust him enough on defense. He gets exploded over the top of. Uh, I, I think I would go Jeffries there. Yeah, it's tough. I don't know that I'm willing to make a statement yet. <laughs> I'm going to make, <laughs> make a statement. Oh, man. That's the that's the host's prerogative. I'm going to make you make a statement <laughs> and then just like fall back and not give a take. <laughs> what a I dig it. What a, what a bad move on my part. Um, <laughs> Cole, tell the people where they can find your work. As usual on thestepian.com, I got some past articles back up on the site now. So the DeAndre 100 piece that I wrote, like a 41-minute piece, that is available. Again, if you guys want to check it out. And as usual, we'll continue to listen to this podcast. You wrote a 41-minute thing on DeAndre Hunter, and you didn't yeah. even tell me about it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I was just like... There's been so much divisiveness with him this year. It's kind of funny just because I think he's such a, like, a very straightforward prospect. I'm not like as high on, as him, on him as some, but I'm not as low on him as others. And it was just kind of like just sussing all that out. And it took a lot more time than I expected. <laughs> yeah, like I have him, I think, at like five or six. Uh, like I think I'm actually I might have him at four now that I think about it but like I'm not like I think he's like a surefire NBA starter who might be like Damari Carroll for the Hawks except for like eight to ten years that's what I kind of use as a comparison point in the article someone like that and I have him I don't know exactly I haven't done my final board yet but probably somewhere he'll definitely be in the lottery for me somewhere in there um, we'll kind of see how it works itself out but I think there's definitely strengths and there are definitely weaknesses that are kind of concerning yeah yeah no there are for sure the field stuff is really there um so i'm writing about the Cavs right now i don't know when that'll be out but i wrote a mock draft over at the athletic go read that um what else what else 
Um, I'll have a big board next week at some point. Um, that, that will definitely be a thing outside of that though. I don't really know what else I've got coming. Uh, there are a couple things I want to write. Like I, I feel like I have to write about Goja Bichadzi. Like I've been texting you like about Goja <laughs> because I'm like kind of sort of in, but then like I went and looked at the production and like his production comparables and I'm like, oh wow, like this, I should be very in on this, but I still can't really get there. So I'm just going to like try and rationalize like a piece in my brain about Goja Bichadzi being the like most divisive prospect in my own brain <laughs> that I can remember. I look forward to some like 1130 at night texting you being like, hey, you've seen this game or what do you think of this and shit like that. I'll be fun. Yeah, like this is this is what happens like every time between Cole and I. I'll text him at like, I don't know, like 830 our time and just like throw a lot of random shit at the wall. And he'll be like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> be like, yeah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, peek, peek behind the curtain, though. <laughs> oh, man. Uh Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Android, Spotify, whatever podcasting app you use. We're up on that. We'll be back later next week. I'll be back with Dieter later this week at some point. But until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye. Bye.